Hi there, this is Rich Cooper with the Space For You podcast, a podcast by the Space Foundation that tells the stories of the men and women behind today's space programs and activities. I'm joined today by Alex Wagner, who is with the Aerospace Industries Association, where he serves as the Vice President for Strategic Initiatives and is the Senior Advisor to the President here at AIA. Alex joined AIA after serving at the Department of Defense, where he served as the Chief of Staff to the 22nd Secretary of the Army, and where he supported what I will only call was a phenomenal amount of programs over at the Pentagon. I can't imagine how anybody could get all of those things just in the seven years you were there, but a very impressive background. Prior to that, he worked with Uber as part of their global policy development team. So he certainly practiced in technology issues, but he also practiced law at K&L and Gates, as well as serving with four different presidential campaigns. He is a security fellow with the Truman National Security Project and is also an adjunct professor at Georgetown Law. So my first question is, Alex, are you ever not busy? <laughs> I think uh, one of the reasons I've uh, plotted the career that I've done is because I've been, always been fascinated at this intersection of law, policy, technology, and of course being in Washington, politics. And so that'll keep you busy, but you can find opportunities and uh, events and activities and professional areas to focus in that it doesn't feel like work. It feels like you're having fun when you're doing something that you love. Alex, tell us about what the AIA is and what's its mission. All right. Well, AIA, uh, as you mentioned, the Aerospace Industries Association, is a Washington, D.C.-based advocacy association that represents 340 members who are focused on space, civil aviation, and defense in what we call the aerospace and defense industry. That's up and down the supply chain from manufacturers to suppliers and even service providers. They've got a bunch of really diverse interests, but you know the common goal of this association is to make sure the United States maintains its competitive edge and industry is right there to support that. Let me come back to when I talked about your intro about, you know, you've worked presidential campaigns, you've worked for uh, a major company like Uber, a major technology disruptor, and then also being involved with government. That's a merger of technology, policy, law. What's that like? Would someone find that fun and engaging? I mean, obviously, you're working in it, so you must enjoy it, but what's it like? I think that's, to me, where the action is. There are all these enormous questions today going on with where technology is going and what role government should have. And what AIA does is it brings them together. There are certain things that can never literally take off the ground without government having a role. If you think about airplanes, if government didn't plan this system that allows people to feel safe when they get into them, that allows them to understand that they're not going to crash into each other, not only when they cross state boundaries, but international boundaries, they wouldn't have uh, had or been able to develop a commercial market. Similarly, technology companies have often viewed government as something that can prevent them from growing, but really those that succeed are the ones that find the mechanisms within government to help not only enable their growth strategy, but make sure that they're able to attract and reach 
the most broad amount of consumers possible. And I think those are the ones that succeed. And those are all in this space at the intersection of technology, policy, law, and of course, being here in Washington, politics. Yes, there's always politics. So tell me a little bit about your members and what are some of their most pressing concerns? Well, I think if you ask our members what is at the top of their agenda, they're very focused on making sure that we have federal budgets which are adequate to allow both the government and industry to do what's requested, whether it be uh, in national security space, uh, whether it be in in defense, whether it be in making sure the, um, the skies above us are safe for increasing innovations and emerging technologies like drones as well as traditional means of travel like airplanes and helicopters. One. Two, ensuring we've got the right mix of proactive policies and regulatory frameworks that enable growth, but also uh, and also give people confidence that their security and their safety will be protected. And they look to government for that. And that growth, I think, is really critical, not only as a bottom line for industry, but growth to make sure that America stays on top. And then finally, workforce. Workforce is something we hear consistently, which is how is the aerospace and defense industry ensuring that it continues to get the, the next rocket scientists and cutting-edge computer scientists to ensure that America stays on top and you, competitive against some of our global uh, competitors. You mentioned uh, in, in the course of your answer there about building some of the capacities that were needed and having the budget so that people could do the job. That sounds like an awful lot of confidence building. Is that what that is? So my background is in arms control, and confidence building measures are an essential piece of having any type of negotiation where you want to ensure that both parties see a problem, see uh, see the facts from the same perspective, and know that they're dealing with the rational partner on the other side of the table. So that's a little bit of it, but I I would just say that that the key the key thing that our members are interested in is making sure that the public is able to to understand what they do. Government knows where there is opportunity to invest so we can maintain our global lead and that there's a business case for all of this. So we're not like some other countries that we have to heavily subsidize our industry. You know, my boss, Eric Fanning, always says that U.S. companies don't compete against foreign companies. They compete against foreign governments. And so government and industry have a really critical role to play in making sure we maintain our lead. Maintaining our lead is certainly about taking care of what's going on right now, whether that be in the marketplace or security. But what about the future? What's a vision for the future in what are absolutely critical areas for economic and national security success? Well, you know, this is uh, 19... Uh, 19 is when AIA was founded, and so now we're in 2019, 100 years later, and we're celebrating our centennial. So it caused us to look backwards and say, what are some of the incredible innovations that our industry has produced from, obviously, you know, the moon landing to the GPS constellation, which enables Uber and Tinder, to be honest, connecting people not only in your own city, but all over the globe. 
And of course, there's the internet, which uh, was initially a DOD ARPA and DARPANET project, which has revolutionized how we communicate, how we engage, how we interact with each other. And we've been telling that story over the course of the year, but as we've been messaging that and trying to raise and elevate public understanding and appreciation of everything our industry does, we thought, well, you can't only be looking backwards. We've got to paint uh, and develop a vision for the future. So earlier this year, AIA worked with our knowledge partner, McKinsey, to develop something which we call Vision 2050. And uh, our goal with Vision 2050 was to figure out what aerospace and defense is going to look like in the year 2050, not with a science fiction perspective, but what we actually think is possible and what we're going to need to do today to make that a reality. So when you think about Vision 2050, Mm -hmm. that is 31 years from now. Mm Will we be having the flying cars? I mean, we're already starting to see the uh, the rise of autonomous vehicles. Is this a sort of blueprint to get everybody that George Jetson car, or is it bigger than that? Well, I'm glad you asked because I think uh, we tried to do two things with Vision 2050, and I'll explain how we get to that vision of the future in a second. But first, I wanted to just underscore that this is not a dream of what the future could be like. This was a rigorous study where we teed up a number of, actually over 75 chief technology officers and chief strategy officers at our members. We engaged senior government officials involved in technology development. And we also worked with people funding uh, many of these startups and upstart companies uh, to look at where the profit pools were and where the money was going to create this market for the future. And what they came up with was what I'll characterize as an optimistic but realistic uh, vision of the future. And we wanted to use that vision on the one hand to engage a broader audience outside of the Beltway outside of Washington, D.C., about what actually is possible. And two, say, well, this vision is possible, but it's certainly not assured. And it's not assured that the United States is the country that's going to be the country that realizes that vision first. And so what we've got to do is not only use this vision to engage a broader audience, but then also use it to say to government, okay, What do we need to be doing within the next two to five years to make sure we're on track to make this vision a reality? What kind of investments do we need to make? What kinds of proactive regulatory policy frameworks do we need to develop? How do we attract that workforce that we once had after the Apollo 11 mission that, that, that changed how people saw themselves in the universe and wanted to play a role in their own destiny? How do we recapture that same spirit? And that's part of what we're trying to do with Vision 2050. What, what are the obstacles, though, that you and AIA see to enacting that vision? What can stop something like this from occurring? Is it just about money? It's, money, of course, is a, is a critical element. And it's not only government money. It's private sector R&D. It's university basic research and applied research working with uh, industry partners. It's this framework I keep talking about, the framework that enables companies to enter and and profit from entering and and use 
and realize their R&D uh, investments, but also that allow us to ensure that we're safe. So you mentioned the Jetsons and this vision of uh, air taxis in the future. Well, the technology is going to be widespread to enable air taxis, not in 31 years, but in the next handful of years. The real question is, once the technology is there, how do we create a system that allows people to feel safe using it? How do we create a system that is widespread and, and people can feel confident using it, but also realize that it can get them where they need and the time they need and it's reliable? So what Vision 2050 says, and when I read it, and this was the most surprising thing, is yeah, air taxis in, in the year 2050 will not be some niche thing that only the rich are able to use to jet off to their beach vacations from the cities, but it'll be about as common as Ubers are today. And as someone who's worked with an Uber and been a part of that, uh, you certainly come to this with a whole lot more, I'll say, informed judgment and experience than a lot of other people. And based on that experience, should people feel completely comfortable with what will be very dramatic changes? Uh, particularly as it relates to, again, these are going to change jobs. These are going to change jobs dramatically, whether you be a truck driver or driving a school bus. Um, aren't, you aren't you worried at how much disruption this might cause? Well, I think the while the change today looks pretty dramatic, I think change is often more incremental than dramatic. It wasn't much more than 12 years ago before the iPhone existed, which meant that Uber wouldn't have even been possible. And so if you told me that I would be on my cell phone 15 years ago getting a car, I couldn't have conceived how that would happen. But it wasn't that that switch flipped on one day. It was that all of a sudden the GPS constellation became open for uses far beyond just the government. Right. And when that commercial sector started to be able to take advantage of the system, which was initially invested in and engineered for a government purpose, opened up to a commercial market, that's where the real innovation occurred. So I think that this change will look dramatic when you're looking out 31 years. But I think it'll feel more incremental as it happens. And as it goes, people will have confidence and people will say, oh, my nephew did that. I guess that's safe. And they'll see photos of people engaging in this, um, in, in this environment that today looks futuristic, but it won't look futuristic five years before it, it reaches full maturity. And there will be news coverage and there will be attention and there will be accidents and, and there will be learnings from those accidents. And, and we'll get there to a place of full maturity in a way that it doesn't feel so sudden that people say, yesterday I was, you know, taking a taxi cab and today I'm, you know, being ferried from my house to my in a, in a in a ride hailing uh, with a, using a ride hailing app to a to an airport uh, where I get on a plane which takes me to a vertiport which takes me to a remote location waiting for me as another uh, autonomous vehicle which takes me to my ultimate destination. It won't happen overnight. I think it'll, each of those elements will appear over time incrementally. You've talked about a lot of players 
you have government, you have industry, you have technology inventors and developers. Who's the stakeholder that you think really needs to step up their game if the if Vision 2050 is to become reality? So that's an easy answer. Everybody needs to do better. AIA is really focused on making sure that government understands where industry is coming from, what industry's priorities are, uh, and helping government do do better and enable more growth and more opportunity. But industry plays a really important part in that uh, that as well. They've got to they've got to make the right investments. They've got to take risks. They've got to look at where technology is going and making sure that we're still on the leading edge of this. And uh, ultimately, it all comes down to workforce. This industry is going to change, and there's going to be fewer bespoke, uh, unique platforms and a real emphasis on software going forward. And as aerospace and defense becomes more software-focused, we're going to have to look towards different types of engineers and different types of talents, not only to uh, build these systems, but as autonomy advances powered by AI, we're going to have to figure out how human-machine teaming works, because neither one of them will be sufficient to enable this future on their own. You mentioned AI and artificial intelligence. What role will artificial intelligence and machine learning play in this future world? Is it the foundational sort of central nervous system of all of it? I think, I I don't know if I would go that far, but it is a critical core element. There is this huge amount of data that today we're not able to fully even realize, and you see little sparks of it when you're online, and you're, you know, you click an ad on Facebook, and then it comes up on your desktop. But that's all going to change with more data and increased analytical power and computing power. That's what's necessary to enable not only flying taxis, but drones performing everyday tasks, whether it be cleaning cleaning windows of skyscrapers or perhaps even building the skyscrapers themselves. There is this entire network, this this highway that needs to be powered by AI, which manifests itself in autonomy in order to to build and envision this modern world that's really right around the corner. And I think those are some of the real critical aspects that we need to be investing in right now and focused on because if we don't create a national framework for how to do this that respects privacy, that has some type of ethics, people aren't going to be feel comfortable engaging with it. And what our critical industry contribution to that is the security aspect, because you can have pure ethics and you can have you know lockdown privacy, but if uh, but if a foreign power gets access to it they can distort both of those. So is data the fuel for Vision 2050? Data leveraged with artificial intelligence manifest in autonomy. I'd say those are some of the most critical elements of this future. You talked about flying taxis and you talked about some of the other things there. What does Vision 2050 have to say about space? and where we're going to go with that. 
So space is a critical part, part of Vision 2050. It's not only enabling ubiquitous global communication and the Internet of Things connectivity. And just to break that out for your listeners, you know, I was told recently, what does the Internet of Things mean? It means that your TV isn't a TV, but it's a computer that shows you things. Your stove is no longer a stove, but it's a computer that heats things. It's how you have a connected home, how you have a connected uh, ride to work, how, you, um, how these everyday objects have really transformed into computers, which then do these th- these very mundane everyday tasks. It's much more than a Roomba, but it's all powered by space. In addition, there's this uh, this real time view of Earth that space will engender uh, with advanced sensors and supported by this AI data analytics and these tools. Vision 2050 also, you know, frankly charts a path towards high-speed air transportation, uh, such as supersonic flight, which we once had, but it was very niche, I think. The advances in technology that will come from reduced sound, the sonic boom, increased speeds will create a real market for it that won't be as widespread as coach air travel is today, but it'll certainly be used if, if, if people can figure out the right routes. Will it be more comfortable than today's travel? Well, I think by 2050, the tube and wing uh, regional travel um, and transcontinental travel probably won't change that much. But supersonic travel will be much more comfortable than the images of supersonic travel that I saw previously with the Concorde when people were jammed in those tiny seats, sweating bullets, you know, thinking, oh, three hours New York to London sounds great, but oh my God, do I really have to sit in this hot plane for three hours? Right. It seems like a long trip that way. Uh, but, you, but you get there in, um, and with, with obviously a very, very expensive ticket. Mm-hmm. But as you mentioned, we used to have it, but now we don't. How will we be able to keep something like a subsonic aircraft and those types of things going forward? Have we learned those lessons so that we don't lose it? So I think as far as subsonic aircraft go, there's the market just makes sense. You know, airlines today are, are pretty profitable. They've managed to turn things around. As far as supersonic goes, what will be new is traveling over land. Reduced technology advances that re- result in reduced emissions and uh, significantly lower sonic booms will enable those things to, to fly over where people live and not disrupt them. And, you know, I saw a study that when they were trialing some of the first supersonic flights over the United States. They used Oklahoma City as a test case, and several times they blew out literally every single window in downtown Oklahoma City in the 60s when they were uh, trying to see if supersonic travel over land was possible. How will the commercial space market shape this vision? So beyond Earth, you know, Vision 2050 incorporates all of these new nascent in-space activities, such as in-space manufacturing, resource extraction, 
that take advantage of the unique conditions of space, whether it be heat, whether it be cold, whether it be zero gravity. But just like I mentioned earlier, where one day the government occupied the field, the opportunities as uh, launch costs go down for space engenders this commercial market, which allows new players to see and seed value. So reduced launch costs means more activities in space, more opportunities, and, and I think creative entrepreneurs will see value in accessing space and trying and testing and failing and testing again because the costs are not so prohibitive. What advice, I, I, I'm going to ask the question in, in, in two different ways. What advice would you give a student today about creating the environment that you've talked about here today, about with Vision 2050? There's the student piece. And the second part of that is, what advice do you have for an investor in this space today? What would you tell those two people? So I'll start with the investor because I I don't have as as strong an answer. (laughs) But I'd say that we are we are really on the cusp of the unknown and there is so much opportunity that mitigating and managing risk in space i think is is a bet today but i think it's a bet that has a real ability to pay off down the road if if you do it smartly you you stick to your business plan and you make sure that you're not following uh, someone's dream alone, but it's a dream backed by uh, analytics, backed by uh, the right amount of funding, backed by uh, broad buy-in of people who who know this, who know the space space better than anybody. With respect to students, we are on the cusp of a new space age and an, and a an opportunity that hasn't really been seen since the height of the Apollo program. And that's enabled by autonomy, where things can be done in space in the future that we wouldn't have been able to do before. So that will create new markets, that'll create new opportunities. And, you know, what what students will be able to see that I wasn't able to see as a student was this nascent uh, ability for people to see Earth from space. Not if you're a Navy test pilot, not if you're a rigorously trained astronaut, but the advent of space tourism will enable people to see themselves among the stars and then inspire them to go hopefully even farther. And I think that to me is the most exciting thing, that this is the new silicon space is the new silicon valley and i think if if you want unlimited opportunity if you want to find a way to test and fail and try again and succeed beyond your wildest dreams space is the place to go and you know aia runs uh the world's largest student rocketry challenge the american rocketry challenge and that is we've found just such an exciting way to get people interested in in the field in general and we've seen them go on to do great things both in government and with our members and with technology companies as well last question when you think about this future what's the one technology that alex wagner wants to see 
<laughs> it is self-evolving, proactive cybersecurity. Now, you're going to have to go uh, check out the report. It's uh, 2050 arrow.space, you can see it online, to understand what that really means. But in the most tangible way, it's a release of passwords. I hate passwords. Passwords are America's and the world's biggest cyber vulnerability, one of our biggest national security risks, and it's because of the people. People cannot remember passwords. And if cyber becomes self-evolving and protecting, we can engage online, we can engage uh, with advanced computing, we can, we can shop more, we don't have to create unique logins for everything, which will save me time, which will uh, not make me worried that my email is going to be hacked by the Russians, and, uh, and I think it'll ensure that the entire system is more efficient, makes more business sense, will allow people uh, to spend less money on protection and more money on, uh, on visionary engagements and business opportunities in the future. So that sounds cyber. More, that sounds more practical than a flying car. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I, I, I'll, I'll take one of those too, but uh, we talked enough about those initially. So. Okay. Alex Wagner, thank you very much for your time. This is Rich Cooper with the Space For You podcast. Please stay tuned for more upcoming episodes of Space For You as we continue to share the stories of the men and women that are making today's space and technology environment possible. Because remember, at the Space Foundation, we always have space for you. Thank you.